This is Daryl Wood, host of Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show on Faith Talk 1500. First, let me say this show is your show. That's why no matter what I discuss or which guests I interview, your input is valued. If it's in the news, on TV, or at the movies, whether political, social, economic, or whatever, at some point I'm talking about it on Run to Win, the Daryl Wood Show, Monday through Thursday from 4 to 6 p.m. on Faith Talk 1500. This is the first book I think I've ever seen, and I, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Write, write it down if I am. Uh, this is the first book that, uh, that I've ever seen that, that approaches uh, evangelical politics from a left-right uh, perspective. Of course, we talk evangelical politics on this program all the time from a left-right perspective, but this book, Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith and Politics, uh, quite frankly, uh, just uh, gets uh, gets right down and dirty. As a matter of fact, Marvin Olasky writes in the uh, the forward. I'm not saying that Lisa Harper is a Marxist. She's one of the authors, but she does have a tendency to concentrate on material circumstances. Jim Wallace, uh, on the other hand, writes of uh, David Ennis. At times, Ennis sounds much more like uh, Ayn Rand, the apostle of selfishness, than he does Jesus Christ. Now, you know, y- you and I, uh, we hold a political perspective. How is it possible? How is it possible that Christians, committed, devoted followers of Jesus Christ, reading from the same Bible, worshiping the same Lord Jesus Christ, can come to such radically different conclusions about what the Bible commands of us in terms of our politics? David uh, Innes is uh, Associate Professor of Politics at the King's College uh, in New York, and his uh, co-author, Lisa Sharon Harper, is Director of Mobilizing at uh, Sojourners, uh, Jim Wallace's uh, organization, and uh, David Ennis and Lisa Harper, it's an honor to welcome you here to the Paul Edwards Program. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. Let's start with the ladies first, of course. Uh, Lisa, (laughs) the question that that floats uh, on my mind every time we have this political discussion is, should there be evangelical political engagement in politics at all? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we're Here's the thing is that we are commanded to love our neighbor, and our neighbor, uh, Jesus defines who that neighbor is. It's not just the person who is next door. It's not just the person who is like us, but it's actually everyone, and it's, it's even, even our enemies, um, according to the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so when you look at how do we love, our love is not limited just to the interpersonal sphere. Um, our love has to hit every sphere of life. So interpersonal, communal, how are we loving each other within community and between communities, even within our church? And then how do we love each other through the systems that we create and the structures that we create and the policies that we create, including the law? So politics is really just one more arena within which we are called to love. David, how do you respond? Well, I would agree with the love your neighbor point. You're supposed to love your neighbor in all things and all spheres of life. And the Bible applies to all of life. It doesn't just apply to Sunday or half of Sunday, but uh, Sunday through Saturday and every sphere of life. And government is certainly an important sphere of life. In fact, the Bible says that God establishes government. He gives it for our good. And so he wants it to be godly. And it's not going to be godly if... uh, if Christians uh, check out and stay home. Also, also uh, Christians are citizens in this republic. And as citizens in a republic where we have the privilege of self-government, we have to, as Christians, bring our voices to bear on how we are going to govern ourselves as a people. So, And that gets back to loving your neighbor. How do I love my neighbor? By, by doing as, as much as I can to make the government as, as best as it can be, as, as, as good as it can be. Certainly, certainly, I agree that, uh, that that Christians have to be involved and engaged culturally. But when I say politically, should uh, should should churches um, be be using church time to promote specific agendas, uh, political agendas, uh, issues, and uh, and even candidates? Well, well uh, I, oh, I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> well, I, I could just say that. Um, Paul, I was a pastor in Iowa for several years, and I preached uh, two sermons every Sunday and a, and a midweek Bible study. And I can tell you, uh, I just preached through the Scriptures. Uh, that way God is setting the agenda. And, and I, didn't, 
I, I didn't make a point of preaching political sermons. Like 9-11, I preached a political sermon. If Election Day is coming up, a, a political sermon to give people guidance on the principles. But I was very careful not to make those sermons a, 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 a political rally. Uh, I, I teach them the principles of scriptures. They make up their minds. And that's what a faithful pastor will do, equip people to be Christians in every sphere of life. Politics is an important one. But you don't, you don't turn the church into a political rally. I agree. I think that what we, what we often see is we see, and I think actually that's part of the reason why the church has lost its witness, is that um, in certain quarters of the church, our faith has actually been married to politics and married to particular parties. It's become partisan. And that, according to scripture, is idolatry. But what we also know is that because we live in a democracy, um, you know, Jesus didn't have the luxury of living in a democracy. He lived in a, um, in a dictatorship, really, with Caesar as whatever Caesar said was, was, was bond. Um, and they had a republic, but it wasn't really representative. And we have a representative, a democratic republic, where our vote, whether we vote or not, we are actually voting. If we don't vote, we are actually voting. So ultimately, you know, we love to point the finger at the government and say we're going we're gonna to retreat from it or something, but the reality is, is that we can't. And in a democracy, we can't because we are the government. Um, and the policies that are passed on our watch while we are here and hold the responsibility to vote, I think we will ultimately be held responsible for before God and history. Lisa, your, your boss, uh, Jim Wallace, and my friend, uh, by the way, uh, and uh, and Dr. Albert Moeller, my friend, uh, recently held a, a debate out at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, probably within the last uh, couple of weeks or so, on the question of the uh, the involvement of the church. Should the church uh, make a priority of of social justice uh, in 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 the church? And I suppose when we when we talk about evangelical political engagement, I, it, it, Dr. Moeller made a distinction. He made a distinction between the church as organization equipping believers to go into their culture, into their communities, and be politically engaged, but that the church itself as an institution should not be, you know, using pulpit time and worship time for for political engagement, but there was certainly nothing wrong with the church uh, equipping its people to be salt and light uh, in, in the culture. Do you agree with that distinction? So, Okay. So I think what this gets to is it gets to your context. If you live in a church, if you are in a church that has very, very little interaction itself with the actual systems that come to bear or the politics of the day, if your people are not actually suffering or or suffering the burden of the weight of, of policies that are unjust, then you can actually afford to to treat politics as if it is uh, and and you're, you can afford for your congregation to treat it as if it is like an ethereal, uh, theoretical thing that they have to think about once every four years or every two years when they vote. But if you are a church that is located in an area or among a people group that is, is directly affected by systems that are either just or unjust, especially unjust ones, then I think it's actually your job as the shepherd of that flock, to lead in a way that, that helps to lift the burden off of your flock. And so, and, and, and this, goes to, this goes to that question of neighbor, right? So if we actually consider all people our neighbor and what it looks like to love, then if I'm in that church that really doesn't carry that burden, I'm actually going to be seeking ways to love the churches that do. And again, that can't just be by... Um, intercommunal or interpersonal interaction, it also has to be um, come down in the form of of how I vote, because my votes actually make a difference in the lives and the livelihood of the brothers and sisters in the pews on the other side of the tracks. David, how do you you respond to to Dr. Moeller? Do you agree that the the church is an entity that that should not be as an institution politically engaged, but certainly equipping its people to be salt and light in the culture, which, as you noted earlier, it involves all of life, which would certainly include the political sphere. Well, I think Lisa has a good point there. And I suspect uh, uh, Dr. Mueller would, would agree with her on some level. For example, if you are uh, Christians in the confessing church in Nazi Germany, you don't 
take a neutral stand mm-hmm. toward these things. You have to. This is a, this is an evil, oppressive system. Uh, this this is this government is radically in rebellion against God, and you have to speak against it. Or or uh, in an earlier day, not earlier to Nazi Germany, but but segregation in this country. Uh, a church would have, if 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 there are segregationists, if there are if there are racists in the in the congregation, that is a social system that the church needs to preach against. Oh, slavery in an earlier time. Now, um, you can you can you can draw finer points than that. These are two obvious evils. But if you got down to saying, well. Uh, our current housing policy, our our current welfare policy, our current name one of a thousand policies and start preaching against all of those things, you're going to spend all your time doing public policy and no time on, on the many other uh, matters that Scripture addresses. And some of those are very debatable. So I'm not sure exactly what Lisa has in mind with systems, but the broad point I think is a good one. Well, Did- I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. Let me just tell folks who we're talking to. David Ennis is uh, associate professor of uh, politics at the King's College in New York and uh, Lisa Sharon Harper, director of mobilizing at the progressive uh, Christian justice organization Sojourners. And they've uh, together written a book, Left, Right and Christ, Evangelical Faith in Politics. And Lisa, you wanted to say. Yeah, I just want to say, well, thank you so much, David. I appreciate um, you uh you know, recognizing there's some truth in that, and I think, you know, when it when it comes down to it, we're looking at, um, you know, today, it's very easy for us to look back on segregation and say that was an obvious evil, but the reality is, is that in that time period, most of the people who were taking part in it, and all those those who were just observing from a distance, they had big questions about whether or not it was right or wrong, because for them, it's just the way things were. It's just the way things were. But those who had a very clear understanding of, of the injustice of it, the clearest understanding came from the community that was suffering the burden of it themselves, and in particular in the church. So oh, no, that's I not true, Lisa. Remember the North and the South before the Civil War? Lots of people in the no, North. No, no, I'm talking about uh, even in the South. Uh, and and segregate. That's that's. I don't think that's historical. No, that that's it's it's absolutely true. And in fact, if you read the letter from Birmingham Jail, what you'll find is that. Even African-American churches during the segregationist movement, there were many who said, we should just not rock the boat. It's just always been this way. And the pervasive, the pervasive mantra of the civil rights movement, or sorry, of the segregationist movement in that time, in that era, and it, it crops its head up all over again and again, is we have a right to preserve our way of life. For them, it was just simply about preserving their way of life. And it was about economics, and it was about a lot of things. But they saw, and they, and they justified what they did using Scripture. So it was important for the, for the church that, would, that actually had people who suffered under the weight of segregation who could really just speak out and make it clear, this is wrong. Now, we look at this 40 years later and we say, this is wrong. But it wasn't as clear in that time. Yeah, the, the, the problem with those people is they were coming to the Scripture with an agenda, they were coming to the scripture through their experience instead right. of honestly and directly. Which uh, was, they were which letting was their economic it. views and, and their, their situation color their view of scripture instead of just listening to scripture. But of course, in the North, you had the abolitionist movement, and lots of things were happening in the North. It weren't. Wasn't oh, of just course, it. of course. I'm not. That's not. I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah. Sure. L- Lisa, do you see an analog then between the civil rights movement of the '60s? and the homosexual rights movement of the 21st century. Wow, that's interesting. Um, the, the civil rights movement of the 1960s was really trying to do one major thing. It was trying to bring America back to its true self. It was trying to have America live out the fullness of its own mantra, its, its own credo, which is we are all created equal and we are all worthy of, of equal protection under the law. And so those were the main things that, that the civil rights movement were trying to, to bring to bear. And in those days, the biggest um, fault line in, in America was race. It was absolutely, and it really wasn't that far. It was like 100 years from, from the end of the Civil War was, um, was actually the time when the Voting Rights Act was passed um, in 1965. And so 
So that was the civil rights era. I think today there are a lot of big civil rights issues. Um, immigration actually would be considered one of the greatest Im uh, civil rights issues or human rights issues of our time. Um, also, climate change and its effects, particularly in, in poorer areas, could also be called a great human rights or civil rights issue. Um, and not just climate change, but environmental injustice altogether um, with uh, dumping of toxic agents into, into poor areas, particularly black and Latino. The issue of gay rights, and in particular gay marriage, if we focus in on that one, that's the one I know the most about. I've really struggled with that issue. And actually, when I started the book, I really did not know where I was going to fall, which, which side I was going to fall down on. Um, I, about five years before I started the book, I moved to New York City from, moved back to New York City from Los Angeles. And it just felt like, well, you know, at that point, it was like, of course, of course we should not um, let gay people get married because it'll ruin marriage. That's just ridiculous. I think, though, over the course of the next five years, I actually got to know gay people, and I also got to know the history of marriage. And I also got to, um, to really begin to ask the question, a fundamental question of our equality and the equality of our humanity. And, and the fact that we are all made in the image of God, and that does include people who call themselves gay. And if they are, in fact, equal, and they are, in fact, citizens, then they actually are, in fact, worthy of equal protection under the law. And if that's the case, oh, my goodness, in my studies, what I recognized was that this, this question has actually already been settled by the Supreme Court. There was a case that came up that challenged the rights of murderers and mass, mass, mass murderers and rapists and their right to get married in jail. And the Supreme Court came down and said that the right to marriage is such a fundamental civil right, a right of citizenship, that even murderers and rapists, mass murderers and rapists, have the right to marry. So if they can marry, I realize, how can I say to my friend Brian, he can't marry? Okay. Well, the Supreme Court would have made that uh, that ruling, I think, uh, under the uh, under the definition of marriage. Uh, I mean, the assumed definition of marriage between a man and a woman. Let, let me let me let me illustrate a, a point that you're making. You say, as you came to know gay people, your view changed uh, over 25 years. I'm a pastor, and over 25 years of pastoral ministry, uh, I've come to know a lot of adulterers. And they're very nice people. They're they're very nice people. And and how far how far do we go, Lisa, to to say my emotions and the fact that I now know gay people and they're really nice people trumps what Scripture clearly says about uh, where Jesus affirms marriage as between a man and a woman in Matthew 19, and what Paul says about homosexuality in Romans 1 and its dire consequences on those who engage in that behavior. Yeah, I actually hear Here's the thing. In the chapter, I actually start the chapter by saying this chapter is not about whether or not homosexuality is right or wrong. And this chapter is not about whether or not the church should be forced, and I think actually it should not be forced, to marry gay people if they feel like it goes against their conscience. And in fact, the, the First Amendment should, does protect the right of the church to exercise its own free conscience. What, the, what that chapter is about is about legal, legal rights of American citizens, any American citizen. And the reality is, is that upon marriage, not civil unions, but upon marriage, the federal government issues more than 1,000 rights to, to married people that are not issued to people who are entering into civil unions or anything else. And so by not actually giving um, those the equal protection under the law and equal rights under the law, you are literally creating a second class of citizenship. And in that way, I am brought back to the civil rights because that's exactly what we fought against back in the 1960s. I, I'm going to let David respond, but I, 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 I need to respond to that one because the, the reality is uh, if, if you're talking about disenfranchising uh, gay people because they cannot enter into the legal uh, contract of marriage. All, all single people are then disenfranchised as well. It's not a matter of disenfranchising gay people. It's a matter of disenfranchising those who do not qualify for marriage. David. 
Well, uh, single people Lisa, by, by Lisa, definition can't marry, though, because they're not because they're single. Well, uh, homosexuals by definition can't marry either, because marriage pertains to um, uh, a man and a woman, and and uh, and, and reproduction and and so forth. Uh, a man, uh, two men can't marry any more than 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 a than a, a bridge club can marry, or or a man and 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 his dog. But uh, what I find interesting in all of this, first of all, Lisa assumes the answer to the question as as a way of proving it. Uh, but that aside, uh, Lisa says has said on many occasions that when we are completely wed to a party's position, that is idolatry. And what I see in 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 the in the book as we've read as we've written it, and Lisa, I fully expected to uh, take a traditional evangelical view uh, regarding homosexual same-sex marriage and and abortion. But what I saw her doing was, was, and I've heard it in interviews, uh, going through contortions to keep herself in peace with the Democratic Party. What? Uh, the, re- the reasoning, the reasoning in support of abortion and in sort of in, in support of gay marriage is grasping at straws. She appeals to the Supreme Court as if that's relevant to what a Christian position should be. Uh, she brackets the moral issue, uh, and 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 so on and so forth. She assumes the answer by way of proving it. And it's uh, it's it's grasping at straws. I'm sorry, David. The the thing that I have to I have to speak to that if you don't mind. <laughs> no, go right ahead. The conversation. So, it's to say that I am grasping at straws by referencing the Supreme Court when we're talking about a legal issue is grasping at straws in itself. The reality is is that this is a legal issue, and I, as a Christian, have to bring my my faith to the table and my faith tells me that every human being, regardless of their sin or not, is made in the image of God and therefore is worthy of equal protection under the law. That's what my Christian, what the Bible tells me. In fact, the fact that we're made in the image of God is so important that the writer of the Bible, that God himself, when God decided to get all those writers to write the Bible, he put that on the first page of the first book. Of the first we don't disagree about the that. Book of the Bible. Right, and he also said in the beginning he created them male and female. So right. the, there, there's no argument about the fact that, that, that men and women are created in the image of God, but, but when it comes to the, their, the, the function of their sexuality, it, it's quite also from a biological perspective, isn't it, Lisa, quite obvious that uh, the, the, the purpose of male and female is cohabitation, with uh, with all things being equal, uh, procreation. And that is impossible biologically between male and male and female and female, which would be a denial then of the very image of God. And it seems to me that what you're arguing for is uh, is a sanctioning the church to sanction sin uh, in order to procure rights that otherwise wouldn't be given to uh, to those who engage in sinful behavior. I can see how I can see how you would, how you can say that or how you could see it that way, but that is not what I'm saying. In fact, what I've actually said um, in a few different places. In fact, years ago when I wrote my first article on this, um, I said very explicitly that actually what I would really press for is I would press for a double-tiered marriage. I'd press for um, or kind of a two-pronged, um, two different options for marriage: either civil marriage or sacred marriage so that the church could actually exercise its own conscience. And if a church decided in its own conscience that they wanted to marry gay people, that they could. If a church decided that they didn't want to marry gay people, that they could do that. And in either case, it would be called sacred marriage. But if people who are unchurched, who are also citizens, or who don't want um who 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 really are not, that's not what they're looking for, or, you know, for whatever reason, that they would be able to go down to the courthouse and get married, and that, that that would allow for equal protection under the law for every human being in America. And that's this, this, in favor this, of polygamy. Yeah, in favor right. Of polygamy, Lisa. Are you no. are you in favor of polygamy, or do we deny no, them the same rights no. that uh, the rest of us have? I, 
no, that's not. I, you are creating that slippery slope. That is not something that I. That is actually even really out there in legal in the legal argument at all. And in fact, that's the reason why. Well, discussions all over. You would have called eight, it a slippery slope five or seven years ago. In California, what happened was the the two lawyers who actually fought for Proposition Eight and fought against Proposition Eight in California were the very same two lawyers who who fought against each other. Um, when Bush and Gore went to the, to the Supreme Court in order to decide who was going to be president in 2000, both a conservative and a, and a progressive uh, lawyer, they both took up the same side and fought against Proposition 8 because what does of that the make? question of equal protection under the law. But We've we're, got to get... we're asking what a Christian position should be. So what the Supreme Court says doesn't matter. And the Supreme Court hasn't ruled on homosexual marriage. It ruled on murderers and rapists marrying. So that's, that's right. irrelevant. But, but what the Supreme Court said was that marriage, and this is in the, in the ruling, marriage is such a fundamental civil right that it does not, the court does not well, have the right to take away the right to marry even from multiple rapists. Right, but they didn't say that, did they, Lisa? Did they say that, Lisa, in the context of of homosexual unions? Was homosexuality anywhere on the docket? No, but that's not the point. So if you're extending that to homosexuals, what stops you from extending it to polyandry and polygamy, groups of men and women of different combinations? No, my point. I think you understand my point, but for some reason you're you're either twisting it or not, or choosing not to get it. My point is that when we talk about citizens, that's what I'm talking about. Citizens and their right to unite with the individual that they choose. That's what I'm talking about. In fact, what I'm talking about is the ability for individuals to exercise individual liberty in order to live their lives free of big government getting into their face in their, in their private lives. That's what I'm talking about. Okay, I'm 10 minutes beyond a break, so let me get a break in here. We're just getting started with uh, Professor David Ennis from the King's College, Associate Professor of uh, Politics there, and, uh, and Lisa Harper, who is uh, the uh, Director of Mobilization with Sojourners. Together they've written a book, uh, Left, Right, and Christ, on uh, evangelical political engagement. The website for the book, by the way, www.leftrightandchrist.com, leftrightandchrist.com. Dot com. And when we continue, uh, let's talk about the Occupy Wall Street uh, movement. David is right there at ground zero of the Occupy Wall Street movement where it all got started. I'm wondering what uh, the response of, uh, of the church, the response of Christians ought to be to uh, what it is uh, the Occupy Wall Street protesters are protesting, if indeed we can ever figure out exactly what it is that they are protesting. David Ennis and uh, Lisa Harper when the Paul Edwards program continues. There is so much going on on our website, faithtalk1500.com. You can check out community news. You can hear us on the air live. You can hear other broadcasts we've carried, or you can see any translation of the Bible. Really, go to the program guide page, look under Search the Bible, and you can see every translation right there. You don't need 30 Bibles in the house. You need one website, our website, faithtalk1500.com. I feel like we've always known each other. Me too. And we just met online. So listen, why do we meet? Maybe at the mall. Saturday afternoon, do a little shopping, a little chilling, and let's wear all pink so we recognize each other. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Kids don't always know that predators surf the Internet looking for young victims. Be your kid's safety net on the Internet. Visit McGruff.org. An important announcement from the U.S. Department of Justice, the Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Under the blazing hot Egyptian sun, within the shadow of the pyramids, the enslaved Jewish people cry out for a deliverer. One man, Moses, challenges Pharaoh and leads the people to freedom. One night only, Ballet Magnificat presents Deliver Us, set to the music of DreamWorks' The Prince of Egypt. This riveting story will jump off the stage and into your life. Ballet Magnificent has performed all over the world, inspiring and impressing audiences with its high-caliber skills. The Washington Post says there's no denying the emotional power of this company. These dancers have the kind of lit-from-within presence rarely seen. Experience Deliver Us, performed by Ballet Magnificent on Tuesday, March 8th at 7 p.m. at Zion Church. 
church in Troy. Get your tickets today. Visit ZionTroy.com or call 248-524-2400. Again, 248-524-2400 or ZionTroy.com. Hello, I'm Ivanka Trump. When I was a young girl, my father, Donald Trump, always told me that I could do anything that I set my mind to if I coupled vision with determination and hard work. He meant it. I consider myself fortunate to have learned from the best, both as an entrepreneur and, most importantly, a parent. My father is a man who is deeply grounded in tradition. He raised my siblings and me to work hard and strive for excellence in all that we do. He taught us that to inspire and gain respect in life and in business, you have to earn it. He has done just that over decades and achieved success at the highest level across multiple industries. He has employed tens of thousands of people and inspired them to achieve great things. Countless times, I've watched my dad make deals that seemed impossible to get done. As president, my father will keep his word. He'll never quit fighting for this country and its future, and he will make America great again. I'm Donald Trump, candidate for president, and I approve this message. Paid for by Donald J. Trump for President, Inc. On the left, we have uh, Lisa Sharon Harper. She is a director of mobilizing at uh, Sojourners, www.sojo.net, S-O-J-O, sojo.net, where uh, my friend uh, Jim Wallace is uh, the executive director. And uh, on the right is uh, David Ennis. Uh, uh, Professor Ennis is professor of politics at the King's College in New York. Together, they are the authors uh, of the book Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith in Politics, the book available at uh, www.leftrightandchrist.com. David, you're right there in uh, New York City where the Occupy Wall Street movement uh, started. Uh, have, have, do you uh, have a clue what, what it is uh, they're protesting? It's now spread uh, even here to Detroit and in other places uh, around the country. And, and uh, is it legitimate? And if so, how should the church be responding? Well, uh, Paul, I, you know, I teach here at the King's College in the Empire State Building, and I've got so much grading and stuff to do, and we're, I wish I'd got down there and, and spoke to them. Some of our students did. They went down there and talked to these people, uh, and uh, they had a good time. But uh, as far as I can tell, they are, they are first of all, they are occupiers. Uh, they're occupying public space, which is for everyone, and they've taken it over for themselves, and they've made a mess of it. And they are abusing local businesses, lose, using all the local bathrooms, making a mess of them, a public nuisance. And for what? They can't even articulate what they're doing. They're having these working groups and thinking of uh, uh, beautiful worlds in their minds and at public expense. It costs the public a lot of money uh, to let them do this. So they're, they, they strike me as lawless, as self-righteous. They know so much better than all their elders and everyone else in the world because they're young, they've had a bad college education, and they're also revolutionaries. They, a lot of them are socialists, anarchists. They don't believe in our system of government or our economic system. If they actually got what they wanted, uh, it would be the guillotine for most of us. Um, I'm not impressed. 31% of them, according to one poll, are open to using violence to achieve their ends. Mm. Uh, there's nothing heroic about these people. Lisa, what, what's your perspective? Exactly the opposite. <laughs> That's not surprising, though. I mean, and according to the 2010 census, like 2.6 million people slipped into poverty last year, and actually we have 50 billion people right now who live below the poverty line. And that's an income of $22,000 for a household of four. You know, nearly half of all 25 to 34-year-olds, which is pretty much the people group that, that you'll find down there in this segment, nearly half are living below the poverty line right now because they can't find jobs that make ends meet. Um, and at the same time, we hear about the growing disparity um, in, American, in American life. We just heard just from the Congressional Budget Office um, a few weeks ago that the top 1% of Americans owns 42% of all the wealth. And then, get this, the top 20% owns 93% of all the wealth. That only leaves 7% for everybody else. That's 80% of the people in the United States only own 7% of the wealth. So the disparity has grown. And then add this, you know, in 1979, the income of the, of the top 1% was, has nearly tripled since then, skyrocketing to 275%, um, percent, by 275%. 
So there's just a way that, you know, I think that is the main thing that the, the 99% movement has really been pressing. Um, it's really been, uh, it's done an amazing thing where it's brought the, the question of equity and equality and uh, the disparity between the, the top 1% and everyone else into the public debate, into the public conversation, where it wasn't there just four months ago. We were not talking about this. And I think it's absolutely the conversation we have to have as Christians. It's something we have to talk about. I mean, Jesus himself said that, you know, how you treat the least of these is ultimately going to determine whether or not you're on the right or the left, the sheep with the sheep or the goats. Um, so it's something that we have to we have to deal with, and they're actually in a lot of ways forcing our hands. How 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 then would you bring equity to the income disparity? I mean, it it if the statistics are true and there there are there are a lot of uh, other surveys out and uh, in depth research that question whether or not the poverty level is indeed what it is, uh, given the fact that that most of the people who would uh, would qualify to be in poverty. Uh, own flat screen TVs, and yet when I travel the world and go to third world countries where there really is poverty, I don't see any flat screen TVs. Uh, Amer the American definition of poverty versus uh, the third world's definition of poverty are, are quite a disparity as well. But if indeed there there are lots of people that uh, that are in an income disparity from the top one percent versus the ninety nine percent, how Lisa Harper would you? level the playing field? How would you level it? How, would, would everybody make 25000 a year? Would that be sufficient? Because $25,000 no, a yeah, year is no. is way more than, than uh, people in third world countries are making. Yeah, no, I don't think that, I don't think anybody's actually asking us to level as in make all salaries equal. Nobody's asking for that. Um, you know, nobody. But I think what people are looking at is they're looking at the growing disparity. In other words, the trajectory that we've been on for the last 30, 30 years is not one we, we, that we can sustain. It's unsustainable. It's a society that actually creates um, a, 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 a smaller middle class. And in order to have a strong democracy, you need a strong middle class. And what, we're, what we are having now is we actually are having a, a shrinking upper class and a growing underclass and not very many people in between. Sojourners, uh, Lisa, Sojourners is very good. And my friend Jim Wallace, every time he's on the program, he, he points me to the Gospels and he takes me to the Sermon on the Mount. Well, well I want to point you to the, to the parable of the talents where, yeah. where Jesus gives the illustration of the guy who got uh, uh, an equal amount with everybody else and he went out and did something with it. What's wrong with – I mean, is, is – is, is, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what's wrong with that. That assumes that everybody gets a talent. In Jesus' story, everybody got at least one talent and they got to do something with it. But in our American history, in our American story, there are people who got not only no talents, but they started with demerits against them. And then some who were just given no talents at all. Not, And, of course, we don't understand what we're talking about, money to work with. Bill, um, Gates is so a, Bill Gates is a college dropout who used his garage to build an empire. It, it was, did he begin in the top 1% or in the 99%? Steve Jobs, same story, Silicon Valley. Uh, uses his dad's garage and the means at his disposal. He's not in the top one percent, but he moves from the from the ninety nine into the one percent. Uh, he used what he had. So, at, at what level do but he we had do a we? Lot. He started with a lot. He had a garage. Well, I think if you're in America, you start with a lot. If you're in no, America, you start with a lot. Not everyone, my friend. Not everyone. Some people don't even, they don't, they not only do they not have cars, some people don't have running water in their apartments. And I'm really for real about that. And if they do, they might have brown water. And some people, they don't start with, with even high school educations that would be competitive um, to even get into a normal college because they don't have books in their high schools, literally, no books. And yeah, some Lisa's people, right, not, only right about books, this. not only do they not have books, but sometimes they actually don't have qualified teachers. So you're, you're assuming a lot to say that in America we all start with an, e an even playing field. Oh, I didn't say we started with an even playing field. Uh, I, I, you're, you're talking to a guy with a high school education that has been able to break into broadcast media and be a pastor and to feed his family. Nobody handed me anything. There, right, there wasn't affirmative action for me. Did they hand you a book in school? Did you well, get a book? Yeah, yeah well, certainly. a lot of people but, don't get books. But, but Abraham Lincoln didn't go to school. He sat by the fireside and, and read. But, David, go ahead, go ahead and respond. You say you well, agree with him. Some, some people uh, 
just to take off where, where Lisa started. Some people come into this country and they don't have anything. The immigrant comes with four dollars in his pocket, finds his way into Brooklyn, and and uh, lives in an apartment with a whole bunch of other people. But to support you, Paul, uh, they they find a way of of making it from there and become become maybe very wealthy or just comfortably middle class or just they just move up a little and then their children move up a little more. So just because somebody starts off with very little doesn't mean they're hopeless in this country, provided we have opportunity, provided the, that the opportunities are open for people to make the most of, their, of what talents they have. And my concern is that uh, government loads the economy down, loads the system down with so many roadblocks, and, and they try to open up the way, but they open up the way for some, and they botch it up, and they close the way for others as a result, but they didn't realize they were doing that. If, if they just got out of the way and let people go, that we would see a lot less of this uh, disparity. I worry about the people at the bottom. They're 20% of the people own 90%, 93% of the, the wealth. That's telling me that there's people in the system, maybe at the bottom, whose productivity is not being maximized. I wouldn't pull the top down. I would, I would uh, rearrange things, free things I, I up. I would rearrange so the, things, the too. I and mean, I think what you're talking about is you're assuming that, yeah, but I would free things that up. systems did not create this problem. Systems did create this problem. Back in 1980, there were lots yeah, L- of LBJ measures. LBJ and his new society. I'm sorry. Yep. Yeah, sorry. Um, when, Sorry, go ahead. When systems actually really did create this problem. When we when we look back at 1980, there was a, uh, an economic system that was put in place in America, and that economic system actually had at its core two major things: deregulation and the the sovereignty of the free market. So, in other words, let's deregulate in order to give market free reign to do whatever it may. And that in that way, we gave free reign to banks. We gave free reign to insurance companies. We gave free reign to energy companies who then took that free reign and exploited people with it. And I actually, I was living in, in Los Angeles at the time when they had rolling blackouts from Enron and from the, the energy company. And it was deep because the whole, the whole state thought, or at least the southern half of the state, thought that we were in an energy crisis. But then they actually got a tape of two CEOs talking between each other and they said, and I quote, and they, they had this on Drive Time Radio back then, and on, it was incredible. They got them on tape saying, well, if Grandma has to pay an extra, you know, whatever amount of money to keep the lights on, then we're going to do it. We're going we're gonna to suck Grandma dry. And I couldn't believe I was hearing my, eye, my ears, hearing what my ears were hearing, and neither could anybody else listening to the radio that day because that is what, when you make the market God, the market exists for one thing, profit, and people do And what not. happened to them, Lisa? What happened to them? Did they thrive with that attitude? No, they fell. Yes, they did, as did the banks, as did everybody else, though, in, 19, in 2008 when we came to our crash. Well, That's okay, i I, I got to get a break in here. We're, we're now 10 minutes past the other break that, uh, that we blew through. Uh, and, and let me just say that profit, profit cannot be the evil thing. Uh, profit is what's left over, as Mitt Romney said it, profit is what's left over after the corporation's paid all its bills, and, and now it's, it's what it uses to expand the economy. Profit expands the economy. And so if you want to do something about poor people, you have to, you, you have to be in favor of corporations and individuals profiting from the economy. And I think, I think as Christians, we've got to move beyond this notion that for somebody to make money is, uh, is a bad or evil thing. And I'll let you respond to that if you want to after this break. David Ennis, Lisa Sharon Harper, my guests, their book, Left, Right, and Christ. Find it at leftrightandchrist.com. I'm Dennis Rainey. You know, I'm no architect, but I do know a blueprint when I see one. And for your family and mine, it's found in the scriptures. On Family Life Today, we pass along the tools that you need to build a strong, healthy home formed on the timeless truths that every family needs. So join me each weekday right here on Family Life Today, changing the world one home at a time. Listen for Family Life Today, weekday mornings at 7.30. Here's the update from The Ideal Depot. It's time for parents to make that all-important decision to pick a school for fall. It can be a money challenge at times, so here's the answer. 50% off tuition vouchers. 
Franklin Road Christian School in Novi stepped up with one 50% discount on annual tuition. So one deserving student can now enroll at Franklin Road Christian School. They, of course, are located on the beautiful campus of Brightmoor Church in Novi. Usually $8,350, you can get that same voucher for $4,175 right now, but only at TheIdealDepot.com. Remember, there's just one 50% voucher and it will go quickly. As always, important restrictions apply, so go to TheIdealDepot.com. Review these carefully. It's a one-half off tuition for one deserving student at Franklin Road Christian School, only at TheIdealDepot.com. Our law enforcement officers face great danger. They put their lives on the line for each of us every day. At Faith Talk 1500, we appreciate these men and women. Help us stand with our brave police officers and Adopt-A-Cop today. Be a prayer warrior for our men and women in uniform who sacrifice for us all. Visit faithtalk1500.com to learn more. Click on the Adopt-A-Cop link or type in keyword COP. Proudly sponsored by attorney Robert Fortunate. What is your religious freedom worth to you? Just how important is it to you? Hi, this is Daryl Wood. It's clear our religious freedom is under attack. The very thing our founding fathers fought so hard for, freedom of religious expression, is methodically being stripped away. The good news is we've got an ally in the fight. My friends at Alliance Defending Freedom are stepping in to help Christians who face pressure to do things like officiating same-sex weddings that go against the very essence of their Christian faith. But that's where ADF needs your help. This alliance-building legal ministry has established what it calls the Freedom Fund to help defend religious freedom at no cost to those who need legal help. This fund is only made possible through the generous gifts of those like you. And right now, a generous friend has offered to double your gift to keep this Freedom Fund going. So call 855-9-ADF-NOW to join the fight with your gift, which will be doubled. That's 855-9-ADF-NOW. David Ennis and Lisa Sharon Harper, my guests, Professor Ennis uh, from the King's College, Associate Professor of Politics, Lisa Sharon Harper, Director of Mobilizing at uh, Sojourners. Sojo.net is uh, where you can uh, find out all about them. They're the authors of the new book, Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith and Politics. LeftRightAndChrist.com is uh, that website. The, uh, the London Daily Mail, I uh, got the, uh, the, uh, the news last night from the London Daily Mail that uh, a, a, a blood test to detect Down syndrome in, uh, in vitro uh, uh, babies has been developed. Uh, the, 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 the lead paragraph of the story says Down syndrome could be completely eradicated after scientists devised a simple test for mothers which can detect the condition in the womb. Uh, normally when we think about eradicating something, uh, it's a disease. Now we're talking about Down syndrome babies as something that need to be eradicated. Lisa Sharon Harper, as a Christian woman, what what should uh, what should be a woman's response to uh, to this biotechnology that would allow her to determine whether or not her baby is defective and and choose to abort it? Well, first I want to go back to the point we were making before we went on break, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, we were we were talking about the the uh, equality or the equity and whether or not people are starting on a on a similar playing field and. You asked a really good question, actually, which is the question of how do you create more equity? And I think that that's the, that's the thing, is that we're not talking about equality of paychecks. We're talking about equitable or, or fair distribution of, of resources. And really what we're talking about is valuing work. And when we look at the, the skyrocketing wages, for example, the income, we're not even just talking about um, uh, uh, the income in terms of, um, you know, wealth or, you know, wealth begets wealth. So you, you invest in, and that's where you get it. We're talking about wages. The wages of CEOs have, have skyrocketed um, since 1979 as well. So you have, you know, back in the day you had a, a, a CEO to worker ratio of pay of 1 to 42, right? They would have like a 42 times more of your average worker, their average CEO would get. But right now you have it's it's more than tripled actually it's more like quadrupled it's it's like 319 times 
the average worker is what the average CEO makes in income. That's just not fair. It's just not right. And, that's, and that is, I think, what people are responding to. So when you ask, what would I do? I think what I would do is I would do the same thing that God did when God instituted God's government. Um, God in, in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, what God did when he instituted this, the, the nation of Israel is to create laws that actually put boundaries. It's not to say profit is bad. It's not. It's just to say that when we put profit, when we value profit over people, that's when societies fall apart. And so what God did was he instituted the Sabbath and said, okay, you can make a profit, but on that seventh day, everybody, including the workers and the animals, everybody gets to rest. And then what God did was said, okay, Sabbath year, everybody's got to take one year off um, because we know that people need rest. And, and also need a, a time to recuperate, and the land needs time to co- recuperate. So well, but, it, but obviously, Lisa, there's a difference between American re- republic, the, the democracy we live in, and the theocracy uh, of Israel, absolutely. where God is commanding his people to care for one another. I, I don't see a government program when the, uh, the, the good Samaritan stops on the side of the road to help the guy. I don't see him filling out any forms. To, uh, to the government, I see him reaching into his own purse to personally care for that person, and, and that's the way of Jesus. That's the, that, uh, Jesus isn't advocating government welfare programs. Jesus is advocating that his people take care of the sojourner, the stranger, the foreigner, their own people, their parents, their children, and th- there's no government in there. What, what God did with the Old Testament law God was the government. Uh, in America, yeah, God isn't for, the government. Except for if this, the thing is, is that Jesus would not do that because Jesus did not live in a democracy. And Jesus knew that Caesar's law was law back then. And so it really was up to the people of God to do what they can. But we, again, live in a democracy. So we are the ones who pass the laws. And our laws either bless or curse people. And that, that's, that's, that's just reality. So what we found out this week, last week actually, the Census Bureau released the Supplemental Poverty Measure. And what that did was it showed that government programs like, like food stamps and earned income tra- tax credit and housing subsidies and WIC and national school lunches and Medicaid, all of these programs actually are now proven. They help keep people from slipping into poverty. These people are... And these programs actually do make a difference. And for all that the church can do, and it can do a lot, a whole lot, in fact, it's needed, if it were to do even two times, if we were to increase our giving two times, let's actually, let's be generous, let's increase our, our giving five times the amount that we give right now, we would only cover 5% of the need for filling hunger in America. If we wanted to actually heal hunger in America and end hunger, as in people not having enough to eat, we would have to increase our giving by 100 times. Okay, well, let me let David respond. We've got uh, we've got exactly a minute and a half before uh, this this hour ends, and we've got a hard break, David. So you get the last word. Okay. Well, if you want to end hunger and and poverty in America, you have growth-oriented policies which free up capital to spread around the economy and create jobs. Uh, the the um, uh, the evangelical left likes to focus in on the the Sabbath year and and uh, Leviticus 25, the Jubilee year, and they take it as a way as God's instruction to radically redistribute wealth. And it's just not there. I encourage all your, your listeners to do their devotions in Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15 this week and see if it's Please there. But then, they, but then they don't go back to Leviticus uh, 20, which uh, says adulterers should be put to death and homosexuals should be put to death. And they don't go back to Leviticus 19, which says you deal with poverty by letting the poor glean in the fields, meaning mm-hmm. the poor have to do real work to get things, but, the, but those who produce shouldn't be so efficient as not to leave anything for the poor to do. So it, it, it's exactly a very selective my point. approach to Scripture. It's very selective. That's actually exactly my point. It's well, it, we, it, it, it seems to me that the, that, that the point is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Lisa, and we've got about 45 seconds, it okay. seems to me that, that the, the religious left in this country, the evangelical left, wants the government 
to totally take the place of, of the church, that it's, it's your view that the, the government can do it much better and more efficiently than individual believers can in just loving their neighbor. No, that is not my belief. My belief is that we are the government. We actually live in a democracy where we vote, and our policies have the ability to bless or curse our neighbor. And sometimes our neighbor actually needs a safety net so that they don't fall into poverty. And other times our neighbor simply needs a hug and a cup of soup. We're, we're going we're gonna to have to leave it there, Lisa. I'm sorry. I, I hate to uh, – uh, I certainly hate to um, – to cut off either of you. This has been a phenomenal conversation, and I've kept both of you longer than I probably should have, but I appreciate it very much. Uh, it's an intriguing conversation, one that uh, the listener can continue by uh, going to leftrightandchrist.com, www.leftrightandchrist.com, uh, and to get this book, Left, Right, and Christ, Evangelical Faith and Politics, the authors David Innes, professor of politics at the King's College in New York, and Lisa Sharon Harper from uh, Jim Wallace's organization, Sojourners. Here's the update from TheIdealDepot.com. Parents and grandparents in Wayne, Canton, Westland, and the surrounding areas, St. Matthew's Lutheran School has two 50% off vouchers for annual tuition, so your deserving student could now enroll in St. Matthew's Lutheran in Westland. My kids all attended Lutheran schools. It's Christian education at its best. Tuition is about $4,600 per year, but with this half-price voucher, you can get your St. Matthew's school tuition for under $2,323 right now only at TheIdealDepot.com. Last year, these tuition vouchers sold in just one week. As always, important restrictions apply, so go to TheIdealDepot.com and read those very carefully. It's half-price tuition for two deserving students at St. Matthew's Lutheran School in Westland, only at TheIdealDepot.com. That's TheIdealDepot.com. Sometimes a simple task like taking a bath can be a frightening experience for a senior. No one wants to be on their back and unable to get up during a bath. So if you or one of your loved ones have concerns about the safety of your bathtub, call 800-USA-BATH right now for information on the Vantage Therapeutic Walk-In Bath. Our unique walk-in design and soothing hydrotherapy make your experience one of a kind. No other walk-in bath on the market offers as many features, and Vantage is backed by Good Housekeeping, which independently certifies the product and gives you a full two-year money-back guarantee for the entire cost of your new bath. The Vantage Therapeutic Walk-In Bath. It's the one certified by Good Housekeeping. Call 800-USA-BATH for more information on our easy finance options and see how you can enjoy the Vantage Bath for less than the price of your daily cup of coffee. The first 50 callers to 800-USA-BATH can take advantage of a helping hands instant rewards benefit of up to $1,500. Call 800-USA-BATH now or see us on the web at 800USABath.com. We've uh, got just enough time on this edition of uh, Good Friday to say thank you for uh, tuning in. And I want to especially thank Kurt for uh, making it possible for our voice to be heard all across southeastern Michigan today. And uh, keep in mind, I, I probably don't have to remind you, but keep in mind that Tuesday is a primary election day. Democrats, uh, Republicans going to the polls on Tuesday. It is imperative that you go vote. Not going to tell you how to vote. I think uh, if you were listening at all to the first hour of today's program, uh, you know where I stand uh, on these issues. And uh, uh, while I'm not going to name a candidate particularly that I'm going to vote for, I'll tell you who I'm not voting for. I am not voting for Donald Trump, uh, especially uh, given the vulgarity uh, that he's used in the last few days. Uh, But, you know, I recognize, folks, that we live in in interesting times. Uh, We live in dark days. Uh, But Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. uh, And that's not a future reality. That is a present reality. And I want to encourage you to stay focused on him, stay focused on his sovereignty, stay focused on his providence in every area of life. And certainly if there's one area of life where Jesus Christ is sovereign, It is in the area of politics all around the world. He is, after all, king of kings. And so go exercise your right to vote uh, this coming Tuesday. Uh, And uh, I'm not going to tell you to vote your conscience. I'm going to tell you to vote your Bible and vote your Christian convictions. And uh, by all means, pray. 
uh, and let's uh, let's uh, spend the weekend in prayer. I hope that your pastor will lead you in prayer uh, on Sunday for uh, the election uh, that's coming up on Tuesday and that we will leave all of these things in the hands of God. So thanks so much for being a part of today's program. Good Friday with Paul Edwards. We do it again, uh, Lord willing, next Friday right here on Faith Talk 1500. Looking for a discounted tuition program for a local Christian school? Go to faithtalk1500.com and enter keyword tuition. Pastor Sylvester Sarge Jr. from a New Canaan Baptist Church in Detroit, Michigan. And you are listening to Faith Talk 1500.